Hi everybody, JP here just to let you know that this is part one of a full interview that we'll be posting today as well as next week. I'm not going to say anything else about the guests or the subject matter. I'm going to let this interview speak for itself, but it is phenomenal. I know that you all enjoy it, so just make sure to tune in next week for the conclusion to this conversation. Thanks. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. My name is Lou Tumialan. A big thank you to Mike Wang and J.P. Colson for allowing me to serve as a guest host for this episode. What a privilege it is for me to be interviewing a retired Navy SEAL, combat veteran, Commander Dana DeCoster, who served three, three combat deployments in Iraq, two deployments for Operation Enduring Freedom, where I had the privilege to serve with him. This is part of our Military Neurosurgery Podcast series. Dana, welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Well, thank you, Lewis. It's a pleasure to be here. Always great talking to you and uh, looking forward to uh, having a conversation uh, here. So thanks again. Well, Dana, um, I think the, the, it's going to be hard to sum it up. A 20-year career in the world's finest Navy as a Navy SEAL during some of our most difficult times uh, in our recent history, but uh, can you give us, give our listeners a, a, a little background of, first of all, your, your path into becoming a Navy SEAL, and then your, your service? Oh, yeah, my pleasure. Um, yeah, and I, I like that intro. I always consider I'm a, I'm a Navy man, right? I'm a Navy, Navy person, so, uh, and I just had the, the, the fortune to, uh, to serve that time uh, in the SEAL team, so all 20 20, 20 years and change. So uh, I, I also like to introduce myself uh, that way too. Is that, you know I'm a retired Navy Navy commander, uh, and then oh by the way this is this is what I was able to do, um, fast. So I appreciate that. But yeah, so for me, my background, um, I entered uh, and got my commission through uh, the ROTC program, which is uh, Reserve Office, Officer Training Corps. There's an N in front of for Navy, um, so NROTC. I was on an NROTC call, uh, scholarship at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, so I'm, I'm originally from Texas, so stayed home, went to school. Uh, was lucky enough to get picked up for that scholarship. And then um, when I graduated, I uh, was lucky enough to, uh, to get a slot. At the time, there were only 11 for ROTC candidates. You know, you have other, uh, other sources to, uh, to get in the buds. You've got ROTC, you have OCS, you have the Naval Academy, and then you have what's called a lap transfer. That's somebody who's already a, uh, an officer in the military, and they either want to transfer over from another service uh, or from a different community within the Navy. Um, so at the time when I graduated, there was 11 spots. And honestly, I did not get a spot right off the bat. I got put on as a second alternate. Um, but I knew being a SEAL was was who I was and what I wanted to do. So um, I knew that there was the lap transfer opportunity where I would serve two years in the Navy uh, in a different career path uh, and then could put in a package to transfer. But I also knew a lot can happen in two years. And I knew this is what I wanted to do. Um, and so I actually started the process of uh, resigning my commission and enlisting uh, in the Navy so that I could uh, uh, get a shot at BUDS. Um, and what that then did is that there was a lot of phone calls that I had to make and talk to a lot of folks. Um, 
And it ended up, uh, the side, you know, the second order effect of that was, uh, it kind of put a face with a name. So as it was explained to me, there was a, uh, a midshipman thought to be commissioned ensign from, um, from the Naval Academy that I got picked up for a graduate program. And that person chose to go that route and delay their, their entrance in the buds. So instead of rolling that spot, you know, to another year or giving it to maybe another academy, I, uh, I had made uh, enough noise uh, that uh, I guess they said, hey, there's this, this, this guy at the University of Texas who, uh, is re- you know, he's got the numbers, he's got the scores, he was a second alternate, but he's ready to, to enlist and, and give up his commission. So they ended up giving me the spot to me. And I actually didn't find that out until uh, after finals. So end of April, I graduate, get commissioned on May 21st. So, you know, four four or five weeks from that date is when I find out. Um, my, my XO at our ROTC unit called me and said, hey, when is your last final? I told him, um, he's like, okay, when you're done with that, come into the office. I assumed it was for more paperwork on, on me you know, enlisting. Um, but I, but at, the end of, at the end of the day, they told me the news and I knew what it was. They wanted to wait till I was done with my final so I didn't go off and celebrate beforehand so i I can only uh, imagine i can only imagine getting that news especially since it was yeah yeah it was a a lifetime goal for you and and your identity and also you know it tells you um you made up your mind you're you're going one direction officer enlisted didn't matter you had one final destination uh so it's and then once so tell us now um about i mean our listeners would be very interested in in hearing about these three combat tours to Iraq. I know that you and I have chatted a lot about it and and our thoughts and perspectives on it, but you know, this is a, um, a a momentous historic uh, element of our history. Uh, Tell us about what your, 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 your time in Iraq. Yeah, no, um, boy, you know, I've graduated buds in 2000. I showed up in 99. You know, then we had, you know, Christmas and, you know, the new year. So, uh, we ended up graduating first class in 2000. Um, I was lucky enough to make it sh- straight through. So I didn't get rolled or, or injured or anything. Um, so I showed up my team and, you know, nine eleven hadn't happened. And so we were training, you know, training for war, but really just, you know, making sure that we didn't have, you know, there was not, there was no active campaigns going on. So it was really just making sure that the knives were still sharpened, right. And making sure that there wouldn't be a cold start, you know, if the call happened, um, and boom, all of a sudden that call happened in the middle of my first workup. Um, and so it was neat to see that switch in everybody. Uh, cause you know, here we are, we're, we're training for real here. Um, and, uh, those deployments and kind of that, 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 that Genesis, I just shared, like how I got to the teams knowing that I wanted to do this. I mean, I was not going, I was, I was excited, right. I was also nervous, right. Um, but also excited. So those deployments, I was, I don't want to say, I don't know if fortunate or lucky is the right word, but just happened to where I spanned four different campaigns, the entire kind of, I was there for the Iraqi independence. I was there for the first elections. Uh, I was there for Iraqi, you know, which we call the Iraqi sovereignty. Uh, I was there for the transition. And then I was actually there for uh, New Dawn, which is when we were handing over uh, everything, uh, to Iraq, and that was that kind of set the stage for ISIS. Eventually, came back in, um, and then boom, I find myself back out there in 2015 fighting ISIS. Um, 
So I uh, definitely saw it full cycle. Um, and what was amazing about it, you know, it's not like one op or one thing, um, is just seeing our service members, you know, not only the SEALs that I worked with, but at a task group and a task unit uh, and a you know, special operations task force, a combined special operations task force, right? The, you've got the maneuver units, the special operations force maneuver units, uh, which could be a SEAL uh, task unit, can be an army task unit, you know, army soft task unit, you know, it could be coalition, you know, it's, it's comprised because that's where that, com- that, that C comes from, right? The combined. Um, and so it was amazing just to see through all those years, the tenacity and, you know, just the, the, the desire to do good and to win uh, never, never waned, right? So some of those, like myself, right, by the time we got to our fifth, it was like watching the same bad movie five times. But nobody is being complacent. Nobody is, oh, here we are again. Um, and it was just amazing to see all the, the tremendous work uh, that, that, that these folks did. Um, and so for me, that was like the most rewarding is just watching the people uh, just just do amazing things and getting after it, never losing focus, never losing faith. And it was it was really impressive. It was, it was a big thing to be amazing thing to be a part of. And if you, I think if you ask any service member, regardless of community that they were in, you know, what do you miss most? It's like I miss the people that I was that I was working with, and, and that's that's definitely what I miss. And it and it speaks to the ethos of what the. The, the SEALs were about, you know, when we when you and I were deployed together, um, you guys all made me a better dive medical officer. I was like, holy cow, these guys. <laughs> um, and I remember trying to keep, keep up with you on a run, swim, run. I had fins and a mask. We're in the ocean, and uh, we're in the Indian Ocean, and you didn't have, you had goggles, no fins, and I, I see you like, I saw you 100 yards away, then 300 yards away, and I'm going, I'm going to friggin' drown out here. <laughs> but, it, but the whole culture of doing the, you know, our, I love the grinds, right? I love our PT because we, it, the, the culture was that everyone was made better. Um, and, and so that, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm, I'm hearing you say is that, you know, and, and that's, you know, again, we want to make this relative to, to neurosurgery. We, we, that's the culture that we want too. Talk to us about that culture. Yeah, I mean, you kind of set the, in, the initial foundation on that is, you know, the bottom line is like, we just want you, you better perform, right? We're, we don't really, we're not focusing, we don't care what job it is that that person is doing in a, in a SEAL task unit, whether they're even a SEAL or not. It's just, you better be the best at what it is you're here to do for this team, period, right? Um, you know, we're not, we don't, if you're not a SEAL, I'm not, I'm not looking for you to be the SEAL or be, you know, go out, you know, go out in the range and do the things like you did, right, where you're, you know, involved, but, um, you know, you were there to be the DMO, the medical officer, so, and you were the best that we had ever seen, and then that's how you get brought into the fold, right, um, and so, um, you know, that, that ethos, that culture, you know, kind of, kind of what we, as SEALs, I mean, we're, we're, we're a warrior class, right, um, and so it just starts from the very beginning on how we, uh, spot, assess, and select um, those individuals uh, to enter to enter our warrior class. And so, you know, we have our standards. Um, those standards, you know, are set, you know, in buds. Uh, those are, you know, 
like written down like tangible standards like it's curriculum um and then you've got the the, the non-tangible standards you know which which that happens uh you know once you get to uh to the team but it all it, the, the foundation is set also in buds with the different uh, uh you know mentorship classes that uh that every candidate gets you know and kind of what it is to to walk this warrior class um and so you know for us and you know and in your field too as a neurosurgeon, I mean, you play for keeps, right? So you have to have high standards. You have to be selective. Um, you know, we play for keeps on the battlefield, right? And our currency is in blood. And same thing in the operating room, you know? A, a routine uh, procedure could, could very quickly go on, you know, become unroutine. So you have to be ready to stand in that arena at a moment's notice. And so for us, you know, um, the way the way we do that is we don't, we do not adjust our standards. Um, you know, we, you know, to get people into your field, you know, the high caliber that, that we need, that, that a neurosurgeon team would need is, you know, you set that standard, you hold that line and you recruit to that standard, not the other way around, right? Not trying to take a square peg and put in a round hole. You know, this person might be amazing. Um, you know, this resident or this candidate um, that is maybe not looking at the seal path, but you're like, you would be great. And I've seen it a hundred times, you know, hundred percent of the time that person ends up quitting or, you know, saying, Hey, this is just not for me. Cause that was never really on their radar. Um, so again, you know, setting that standard, holding that line and removing that standard, that's, that's how we start with kind of establishing that ethos of, uh, of high performers and, and folks that, you know, not only, their performance really is not because they want the accolades and they want to show how fast the swim they are, that they're swimming. It's, it's, Hey, they don't want to let down the person to the left of them or the right of them. So, um, and for our listeners out there, uh, one of, uh, Dana's last tours, I think your last tour was serving as a director of training for buds. Uh, and and one of the things you talk about selectivity, which is obviously very important Mm -hmm. to the neurosurgery community and how Congress was asking you to generate more SEALs. Talk to us about that selectivity, what was being asked of you, and, and, and how you handled that as the director of training for BUDS. Yeah, yeah. So I was a director of training for our brigade-level command called the, the Center, Naval Special Warfare Training Center, or Naval Special Warfare Center. And so underneath that, you have two echelon uh four commands, the center is an echelon three, um, and those two commands were the basic training command and the advanced training command. So BUDS for basic and the advanced training command, that was all of our schoolhouses, um, you know, sniper, breacher, all those specialty schools that SEALs, those that are already in a platoon, they would go through. So I oversaw those operations and, and the training for that. And so, you know, while I was in that position, this is before, this was my last tour before uh, retiring. I'd just previously been the J3, the Joint Operations Officer for a combined Joint Operations Task Force. Then I was the Operations Officer for Group 1, which is over all West Coast SEAL teams. And so then I moved into this position. And part of it was um, we always, we, meaning Naval Special Warfare, and then the other components that make up SOCOM, so Army, SOF, um, which is comprised, you know, they're the biggest, big green machine. So you got the Green Rays, the Rangers, PSYOP, uh, you know, CA, there's a CA uh, brigade, 
uh, civil affairs. So very big. But the point is, is like all of us are required to provide reports to Congress um, since, you know, we are, those are, we are, we are the, we are the military, but we all have civilian leadership. Um, and so we provide kind of what our throughputs are, how many SEALs that we are training. And you know, especially with those, the longest war that this nation has fought, I mean, there's always a demand for more SEALs, more SEALs, more soft special operations force operators. Um, and one of the, one of the soft truths uh, that came out from SOCOM um, was, you know, hey, soft special operations forces cannot be mass produced. So a lot of these these presentations to Congress or these updates, you know, were just to show them that, you know, we have turned on the spigot to get more uh, more folks. However, we are not changing the standards. Those standards have been validated, independently validated, I might add, uh, showing that the evolutions that happen in BUDS are tied to combat requirements, you know, so even log PT, which you might say, well, we're not throwing logs at our enemy. Well, true. However, we are maneuvering on the enemy in a four-man boat crew or squad uh, or fire team. Um, and so moving through that and obstacles and working together through pain and ab- you know, misery, that's what you're doing on, on a lock, right? You're working together, calling out commands to lift it up, move it this way. Um, and so that builds that foundation. So, again, those standards have been tied uh, and validated to our operational requirements. And so when I, when I stepped into that role, not only were we asking to be able to report on kind of the normal numbers, like where we're at with our throughput, how many, how many more seals are we making? Are we backfilling the one seals that either retire uh, or decide to get out after their enlistment or, you know, God forbid, we're killed in action? <clears throat> are we fulfilling those? Which we were. Sometimes we were slightly, you know, below. Um, but, um, but the other one was assessing uh, with, uh, with, you know, the... With, with the introduction of women in soft now and allowing them to be in frontline positions, uh, we had to make sure we were ready for that too. And how are we going to handle that? So my job there uh, as the director of training was, was just to kind of start that. So I ended up actually being, you know, assessing the first female that came through our pipeline, um, both uh, through uh, the officer side, uh, came through what we call um, – uh, so as to officer assessment selection, so not actually commissioned officer, but midshipman, uh, and then also uh, a female that came through our special warfare combat crewman uh, pipeline. So there's two different communities that make up naval special warfare. You have the SEALs, and then you have this uh, special warfare combat crewman. Um, so <clears throat> it was definitely um, it was an it was an interesting interesting time, not only uh, because of the demand signal we were getting from more more SEALs, but also uh, for, for assessing uh, females that would be coming through our pipeline. But again, you know, what we saw what was a huge beacon, uh, that, that, you know, bright light, right, Claren Bell, was that we realized, you know, these selective disciplines will attract attract the right people, right, like initially. You know, they, they, like look at pro sports, right? When you have something that's so selective, you're going to get people that, you know, are going to, going to go for that dream, right? doesn't mean they're going to make it, but you're going to at least get that foundation of that ethos that we want is something that's willing to, to step out there uh, and challenge themselves. Um, and, you know, is not afraid uh, of failure and will dust themselves off and get back up and try again. But again, I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of these folks decide that it's not for them or they do get injured. Um, and, and we do our best to find a new purpose for them 
uh, in the Navy, uh, as well as uh, rehabilitate them so they're, they're back in action. So one of the things, uh, you gave us a, uh, a lunchtime uh, talk at a CSNS meeting a couple years ago um, at, um, as a favor to me, and it was probably one of the most memorable ones, and, and a lot of us are still talking about it, so we, we've got to get you back and do that in, even in a bigger form. But you, you, you're, the, the title of your talk is, What a Navy SEAL Can Teach a Neurosurgeon? And a lot of that has to do about how selectivity and how we're drawn to that field, how, you know, you, you, you want to be that guy. They're like, oh, look, there's that hill, but that hill is higher. Well, I'm going to go up that. You're drawn to this. That's how you get these David Goggins type folks, people like yourself, the, the, the individuals that um, we, we meet who are just, I mean, some of the most exceptional people I've met were uh, during my time in the, in the Navy with, um, you know, with when I was augmenting the, the SEAL platoons. I'm like, where were these guys come from? <laughs> Um, so one of the things that you mentioned there is don't be afraid to cut dead weight, but Dana, how do you cut dead weight? I remember when we, when we, uh, when I visited you, um, at Bud's, um, there was a couple holdovers there and you, you were, you were watching them PT and you just kind of mumbled underneath your breath. Yeah, he's not going to make it. Um, you, you, you could spot that you, you, you knew that and so I mean that's and the obligation that we have to cut dead weight. Talk to talk to us about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, and, that, and those are these are not easy conversations, right? When you're cutting the dead weight, because chances are in that situation, you know, this person they are not self-selecting themselves out of the program, meaning they're not deciding like, hey, this is not for me, right? Um, and so they think that they're doing good, right? They think that they. Hey, I, I'm doing really well, but they're not meeting the standard, right? Kind of goes back to what I say. You've got to set this standard, set this standard high, um, hold that line, and then recruit to that standard, right? Not the other way around, right? You're not trying to like, oh, you would be great for this. Why don't you check this out? Because um, uh, chances are when that happens, that person absolutely will not make it. I mean, we see it all the time. But, you know, you, you do these exit interviews. They go, uh, students that, that end up quitting, uh, or injuring or for whatever reason or leaving the program, they always have an exit. Uh, they fill out an exit questionnaire as well as have a no kidding face to face sit down with uh, our uh, our director of mentorship, who is a uh, retired SEAL. Uh, the current one is retired force master chief. So, you know, the, the man, right? The person, yeah. the, the senior enlisted for all. Um, <laughs> you and don't have mess a really with those. Good conversation with that. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when you have to, cut that dead weight though and drop somebody for their performance because and again their chances are in their head they're like i'm killing it um you know that's those aren't easy conversations but you have to have those right you have to have those because it goes back to that you gotta hold that line like you we're not here to you know drop our standards um we're here for them to elevate theirs to that, right? And that's that baseline because then once you get a buzz, it's, it's that, that bar keeps going, right? Like you're, it doesn't just stop. Like, all right, woo, I'm good. I mean, I've, the heart, you talk to any SEAL, uh, you've had way, you've been way colder, way, way more tired, uh, way more, you know, nervous uh, outside of buzz doing, you know, than, than you ever were in there. But buzz gives you that baseline of like, okay, I know I can push myself to these extremes. Um, so, you know, cutting that, that is, that is paramount because it's not going to help, it's not going to help you out in the long run, right? I mean, you look at all of these corporate, um, ad, you know, advisory groups and, 
you know, selecting and hiring the right people, you know, and they, they even have a dollar figure equated to it, right? Like, hey, you know, hiring the wrong person will ultimately, cost, you know, and let's say their salary is $100,000. Well, hiring the wrong person in the end, whose salary is, at a, is 100K, you know, it's probably going to cost you 300K uh, in lost uh, productivity from them. Maybe they they got the wrong attitude, you know, and eventually you do fire them, but it's cost it's cost you $300,000 and now you're still without the right person, right? You still have a hole that you got to fill. And so, you know, for us, and I know with you and neurosurgeons, like I said earlier in this, in this podcast, I mean, we play for keeps, right? So my currency is not dollars, it's blood, right? It's loss of life, right? It's injuries. So you have to hold that line and you just have to be very frank with them. And so we have a, a feedback loop, you know, that we, um, you do this throughout your life in the teams, right? After action reports, you know, we're constantly, you know, assessing ourselves, right? Like, okay, hey, we just did this mission. Let's do a quick hot wash. Like, how did that go down? What went right? What went wrong? Chances are there's always way more things that went wrong. It didn't go, you know, than there is, you know, a, you know, a right. We call it, you know, uh, you know, that, that type, that's a good form of motivation, right? Um, even though, you know, instead of always giving praises and trophies and everything, like it's good to, to get a frank conversation. So cutting that dead white, I mean, it just goes back to like, you, you have to, you have to do that. But again, to do that, and when you have those, those conversations, you know, having that feedback loop, like you're constantly watching the individual, you're, you're writing down their performance, like you're keeping track of their progression, right? You're giving that individual too, though, feedback and uh coaching too like hey you're not making it right hey you're missing this like you're not doing this so you so you do you know you don't just sit that back there with you know mute and not provide kind of kind of feedback to that individual if they're making it or not making it you know but you you know you you don't you also don't hold their hand and give them like the secret code to the game or you know the cliff notes to how to get through you're just like hey you know and you know and so just providing being part of this feedback loop, not to kind of get into the whole uh, speech that I, that, I, that I gave to, to uh, your group, um, but, you know, I, that was one of the big parts of that. Um, and then at the end of the day, you just got, you got to set that standard, uh, recruit to it, and then hold it. So I'm going to give you an imaginary position. Uh... Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.